This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the blog to watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with the Superlative Podcast. My guest today is Mr. Nick Folks, and he is an author, an editor, and historian about watches and other things. I think, and other things, yes. Many uh, other things. Many other things, yes. Nick, welcome. It's been a while that I've tried to get a conversation with yes, you. Yes, I'm so sorry about that. I'm just the sort of least well-organized person I know. It's okay, but I'm in your home. I actually had to yes, come I'm here. Yes, I'm sorry. You had to actually come and find me at home and <laughs> tie me down. Cornered you. Yeah, 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 you did. It was like a siege. Yeah, I had my equipment and everything. It's like, it's like that sort of Waco siege where you have sort of armed, <laughs> you know, armored vehicles outside ready to, and man with a mega halo or mega, what do they call this thing, loud halo. We're, you know? uh, yes, we're very assertive in America. This is how we get things done. What a fine country. Uh, thank you. Um, uh, currently the, the top market in the world for watches and, and I think that's an interesting place to start because you have been a voice uh, for luxury for a while. And this has been an industry where things are sold in a place that's different than where they're made, oftentimes. Mm-hmm. Comment about that. Is, that, is that. is that unique? Is that different? Is that weird? I mean, first of all, it's not entirely true because I, I sort of, one of the first things I started writing about in much detail was, and my first book, I think, was actually about Turnbull and Asser. I wrote that in the um, early 90s, I think, um, th- that tailors' shops and shirt makers and all this kind of thing in London are, they're not brands. I mean, sometimes people think they're brands, but they're not. Um, they are just businesses. They're, they're, a, they're a good living for the person running them, and they would often have the man in the front of the shop, and then in the basement they would have people putting the stuff together. Or at most distant, they would have somebody coming in from some suburb with a, a, a Piece worker coming in with sort of three three bases and then taking away some more cloth to base it up and all that kind of thing. So that's a kind of long way of saying that it's not entirely correct what you said. But then in the watch thing, for example, that's super that's super correct because you probably wouldn't sell many watches of the high value in Le Locle. Do you know what I mean? Exactly. Um, and so it's uh, I've always rather I've always rather liked that. Uh, conceptual distance between the maker and the wearer, that they lead two such very different lives, and yet they connect over however imperfect their understanding of each other's way of life may be, they connect over this object that they may well see different things in, uh, but yet they both value it. Um, and I, I, rather, I rather like that sort of imperfect magic that, I, that, that sort of happens. And it's still, for me, it's great to see something that is a product of one man's mind and hands being appreciated by somebody else. Um, it's human. There's something very alive about many luxury goods that we admire. Like you said, it's something human because it's put together by hand, sort of like a drawing is always going to feel more lifelike than a, a computer schematic. Um, but is that you know, is that what uh, the allure for you of luxury? Is it that human touch? Is the organic quality in a world of synthetic things? I, it's oddly you mentioned synthetic things. I grew up, I was born in 1964, the very end of 1964, and I grew up in the 70s, really. And that was an era of battery watches and synthetic clothing. And I spent much of my time from about the age of 10 or 11 buying Mechanical watches, silver cased, you know, for like a pound or 50 pence. And then when they stopped working, I had to put them in a plastic bag. Um, and vintage clothes, again, I could get a superb dining suit from, I mean, I remember we used to have a thing called jumble sales, which are probably called yard sales in America. But they were done at the village hall or at the church hall or something like this. And when I was at boarding school in, uh, in, the, in Sussex in the 70s, I used to cycle out around, the, I used to get the local paper, the West Sussex County Times, and I would check when there were jumble sales. And then I'd go around, on a Saturday afternoon, I'd go around four or five jumble sales on my bicycle buying stuff that was, I mean, even now I'd think, it's just like museum quality stuff. You know, I was getting, a, there was a guy, there was an old boy there who, you know, had been at Oxford in the 20s and he had his dinner jacket there and he was selling that, you know. So I was, I was buying these things. And the terrible thing was, of course, that sort of at that age, you just sort of wear them and go out and get drunk and all this. But I, but I loved old things, really. And I loved... Um, How did you learn that those sales had those great finds? You know, 
it's just, I, I didn't, it, it wasn't sort of instruction. It was just, I loved the secondhand clothing market. And then I met some dealers from London who were coming down to some of these places. And then I rang, I mean, I'd ring somebody up and tip them off that there was sort of, I mean, there was one place where I found something like 10 pairs of barely worn bespoke lob shoes, which is a pretty good find. And I, looked, I, mean, I could only afford one pair because they, were, they, they knew what they were. But, so, but I mean, it was, I mean, also in the 1970s in England, nobody had any money. Right. Um, and, um, you know, so I'd tip him off about this or I'd sell stuff to them. And so it was a little, it was a little business. I mean, a very little business. Well, it sounds like it, you spent a lot of time uh, searching for and collecting clothing and goods like that because it was available. I've heard similar stories to this. I think what's interesting, which is common throughout all of them, is that you start it because it's a value. Like, you, you would not buy it at full retail. You couldn't. But, like, you found this almost like a treasure trove of good values, whether it's vintage clothing or art or watches. And later on, maybe today, more people appreciate it. But when you started, it was because it was fun and inexpensive. It was fun and inexpensive, and I loved the stuff. I loved the kind of aura of the past that was with, with these items, you know, I, 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 got to, I got to see what a good buttonhole looked like as opposed to a bad buttonhole, as opposed to a machine-made f- sham buttonhole, was, which was all the crap you could buy in the shops. So I, 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 I got, a, you know, you, when, you see it, when you see enough of anything, you, kind of, you, you, you can understand what's, what's good and what's not so good. And also then you started to pick up other things as well. Like I remember I picked up once um, a 1930s radiogram, which is a record player and massive radio that was looked at like something out of, they would have listened to the announcement of World War II on it, for example. <laughs> or I got a sort of a very, sort of like a B-52s talking heads type thing, which was a, a big plastic pineapple to advertise a fruit juice thing that was made into a lamp. And it was a, it was a lamp for a pub. Oh, fun. Um, yeah, and, and, and then you'd somehow come across silver cutlery, which they just bunged in, and the silver was obviously, I mean, you know, there was a little, there was a little more value to it than what they were charging for. So they, they, you, you, you became a sort, of a, a sort of expert scavenger in that you knew a little about a lot. And then also, but the, the clothes were the things that I really, you know, I pretty soon realized that, you know, alpaca line suits and things like that, you just couldn't, I mean, those things didn't exist. I mean, they might have existed in the, in the tailor shops of Savile Row, but I certainly wasn't going there aged, whatever. And, um, you know, yet here was something from the 30s, you know, impeccable, impeccably tailored that my kids now wear. Um, and, I mean, they've got clothes from their great-grandparents that they wear. And also Freddie and Max, they go out to all the markets, all the, all the car boot sales, all that kind of thing. Well, you'll have to admit that while there's great values there, for whatever reason, a lot of people don't like buying used. Why do you think that is? Well, because of the sort of this, the perceived thing of the hygiene, I suppose. And you don't want to think somebody's died in it. But those aren't actual dangers. <laughs> All we have to fear is fear itself. Isn't that one of the great American presidents said that? Yes. I guess what I'm getting at is you and I have both identified that there's these values in used luxury goods, but it isn't until marketing people paint words like vintage or antique on them that everyone else seems to open their eyes. This is what really irritated me. I mean, so the, our favorite topic of, uh, of wristwatches. I was very happy buying old Cartier for next to nothing because I really liked them. I mean, I'm wearing one today. It's a small, it was owned by the producer of the Carry On films. It's a nice watch. You know, it's totally, un- I mean, for many, many years, it probably still is very unfashionable, but it, it, there was a time when that was kind of completely unfashionable. And it sort of annoys me that it's still the same thing, but because Tyler, the creator, has won a Cartier crash, and Rihanna, well, I think Rihanna wore one as well, or maybe she wore a King Midas, all the stuff basically that I liked and was able to afford still, kind of. Suddenly, it, it's, it's suddenly top of the pops. And, I, and I, part, of, part of me quite likes having my taste sort of validated and vindicated by people who are half my age or whatever, which is sort right. of quite funny. But then part of me is, the snob in me is very upset that something that I, I considered myself a sort of, to have it to myself, you know, like well, Smaug in the basement in that mountain in The Hobbit, you know. I agree with you completely, but, you know, it's part of sort of this ecosystem. There's a cycle, if you will. And the cycle begins with someone who knows, such as yourself, discovering that something is cool and has value. And maybe that's the way it is forever. No one else but people that know figure it out. But oftentimes, 
like the general public gets a whiff of it. And then because of the increased popularity, you, the original sort of discoverer that's cool, can no longer afford it because more people want it. But here's the silver lining in the next part of the cycle. You now have the opportunity to find the next undiscovered thing. Yes, I know. So as long as you stay ahead of it, you can sort of win in that cat and mouse game because they'll never know what's cool by themselves. They'll no, always but, require but someone like I know what you mean, but I, I, I mean, somebody like Tyler, the creator, is a very talented individual. I mean, I've, I've no idea what he creates particularly, but I mean, he's somebody who obviously has found his voice resonates with millions of others. So I don't even know who that is. Well, we, we, I think he's on very, I think you're, you can look on the maj- <laughs> His Majesty's internet to discover who he is. <laughs> No, I know what you mean. It's just it's just such a bore having to stay ahead of things, you know. I mean, it's it, it's I'm I'm quite lazy, <laughs> so I. I but you of, weren't in your twenties. No, and I'm so probably still not really. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm quite. I work quite hard. You're curious. Yes, I'm still curious. I like discovering things. You know, when I come to London, for example, it's one of a few cities in the world that has all these amazing independent shops, and you can still discover new things yes. that are not expensive that. If everyone else realized, you'd be like, oh my gosh, this is just in a couple of years, this is going to blow up. You and I, I'm sure, independently in our lives, have seen things, they become cool, we're like, I knew it, yes. but then we have to find something else. Which is fine, because there is plenty of stuff. I mean, this human creation is not limited to um, you know, a half a dozen types of wristwatch or something like that. Now, let's talk about your entrance into the watch world. I know that's not everything that you do, but when I first started... Mm-hmm. And I was going to some of these events. I was the new guy. And you were, you were sort of one of the watch writer royalty members. Mm. I remember being very interested in how respectfully some of the brand CEOs would treat you and invite you to see their stuff. And I didn't know what to make of it. But I recognized you had, you had obviously done something to command their respect and attention. And I'm asking you today, because I'd like to hear from you, what was that thing that you did to, that make him so impressed? Well, that's a very gratifying picture you paint. The, the, the simple answer is probably I'd just shown a genuine interest in their product that was totally unaffected. And also I demonstrated a modicum of knowledge purely by having done it for a while. You, you know, you kind of pick up a few bits and pieces of information. And probably because I'd done it for a while and, and I, I was a sort of, I, I, just by being around, you know, you kind of, you, I mean, there is, there is still that kind of residual respect for one's elders. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. the sort of, the sort of old codger comes along and they sort of no. help, him, help him into the stand and see if he wants a cup of tea. Um, and also it was some of many of them, not all of them, but many of them quite liked the fact that I wouldn't just say I liked everything. I remember describing somebody showed me watch and I said before I could just stop myself, that's a, that's a fucking abortion. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, I mean, it, it, it's, it's, often, it's often quicker and easier in the long run to be transparent. I mean, they show me a tray of stuff. I said, like, I, there's no point you showing me that because I'm not interested in it. And it's going to be a waste of your time showing it to me, a waste of my time. And I'm just going to get kind of more and more irritated and look for reasons to leave. Whereas I actually want to look at what's under the handkerchief there. And I'd like to spend more time looking at that with you. And um, most of them probably find it mildly refreshing I don't know I mean or well, they did today obviously things are things are very not very different um but it's quite interesting with even I mean even somebody like Jerome Lambert we were talking this was a couple of years ago now how he feels like he's becoming a sort of one of these sort of old senior citizens you know that he sort of actually worked with Gunter Blumlein you know and he can remember I mean remember I mean I you may, I mean Tank Francaise is a is a great point and I'll show you later the ashtray I got from the original launch in 1996 at some chateau outside Geneva with the, the, the young Kennedys, the ones who tragically died in the aircraft cache, with Charles Aznavour, with and, and, and. And it was the last great Cartier party. I mean, like, like the ones, you know, you're the ones you see in the books from the 70s and 80s at Le Bourget and the Santos party and the one that they did in Marrakesh. It was the last, I mean, admit, they, they built out at the back of their chateau the Place Vendôme in, indoors. Wow. And then at midnight, all these kind of facades dropped and you had ice skating rink, uh, I think it was Regine's nightclub, you had a cigar shop, you had Fouquet's brasserie, you had, and it was, it was like, 
you know, and I thought, I, I mean, I was still, no, this, it was the, the SIH age had just started a couple of years earlier. And I thought, well, this is good because this is, this is obviously what we can look forward to is more of this. And I think it was more or less the last sort of really sort of Cecil B. DeMille type. Obviously, those are very expensive productions, but they had value and that's why people did them. Why did their value erode? I don't know if the value has eroded. I think it's something to do with the increasing what watchmaking, what I've seen watchmaking become is a career choice for clever young people who would have gone to Procter & Gamble or into Boston Consulting or into Bain & Company. And those people bring, they, they come with, they're very clever people, they come with a, but they come with a standardized set of, a sort of a, a toolkit of options to do in which having a party that's like an episode of Dynasty or Dallas but plus, 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 with sort of private jets in livery frying every kind of princess from sort of around Europe in and all this kind of stuff. They probably, they can't, they can't, they can't measure that. They can't apply a metric to it. So they, I don't know, they do other stuff. <clears throat> I don't know. I mean, that's just, that's just a sort of grumpy old man's theory, you know. No, it's a, it's a good theory. My question is, how does that compare to who in the 90s or before that was doing? You said that, you know, it's sort of a management type that could just as easily have gone into some other type of career. And I, I agree, that is a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them. But back in the era that you're, you know, fondly recalling, how was it different? Who was working in the Well, I mean, what was, what was different about it was that, first of all, it was a bit like the Wild West. I mean, there wasn't all this knowledge. There wasn't, you couldn't look online and become an instant expert in small cosmetic changes on sports Rolex models made between 9, May and December 1967. You know what I mean? You couldn't, you couldn't do that. That wasn't available. Nor did you have that sort of forensic ability to analyze the finishing on the wolf's teeth of a sort of uh, gondolo caliber of Patek. Or something. You know, so, so basically, the thing was, if you knew it was a mechanical or automatic movement, you were king of the world. I mean, you were an expert. You know what I mean? So if you, if you could tell a chronograph from the chronometer... I mean, you were regarded as, 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 as God. And, um, you know, there were a couple of Germans, like Gispert, who, who was and still is a sort of brilliant maniac. And he would go to the patent office. He was a, he was a legislator, lawmaker in, in Bavaria. And I think he would go to the patent office and look up and see what patents have been filed. So he knew what was coming. So the Germans were always very keen on the... I mean, the Germans actually were quite ahead of the game. The Italians, it was more about... You know, they, they, were, they were five years ahead of trends because without, without the accelerating power of the internet and then the double accelerating power of social media, trends took time to percolate. You know, they'd see, you'd, see, you'd maybe see a guy, they'd have, they'd have an idea in, in September and then maybe it would make it into a magazine in June, in sort of February, and then you'd see it being worn on holiday on, in the summer the following year and you think, oh, that's cool, I might see if I can find one of those myself. Whereas now, of course, you see it on somebody's wrist and then next week it's all over the shop. Um, so it was, it was, it was slower and, um, but also you had people like Alan Dominique Perrin, you had real giants, you had Gunter Blumlein, you had Gina Macaluso, you had Rolf Schneider. You could still go and get a brand like Gino Macaluso did that was on the floor, like Gerard Perigo was on the floor. And then through his contacts, because he was, he was a former rally champion. He was friendly with all these upper, upper tier, uh, people like, um, Help me out here, Luca de, Cor Luca de Montezemolo and people like that. So he, he, he linked Gerard Perigo with Ferrari after, own, after basically owning it for a couple of years. Um, those are cool watches. Those are, those are very cool watches. And I mean, also the 375mm uh, Crenomana Poussoir that he did, one of the most exquisite watches. Um, there was a food drawing on that wasn't actually a proper food drawing on, but it was a very cool, it was a very cool 40 millimeter chronograph. In today, gold. a good value. Ex exceptional. I value. was looking at those. Exceptional I know exactly. What they're about. really, really good watches. So I mean, you, 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 but you, those that was that was you could still the money, the sums of money were still such as could be commanded by an individual, obviously an individual of talent and vision. But I, I remember Ross needed to tell me that when he bought uh, Ulysse Nardin, there was one and a half employees. Um, <laughs> The early eighties, he got it. That was the early eighties, no mid eighties, I think. And then, but, when, but I remember when um, Carl Friedrich Scheufler and his father, I think, they went looking for a brand because they were they were manufacturers, white white label manufacturers, and made jewelry makers in Germany, and uh, and they 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 heard their brands of the things. So we better get a brand. And this was I think in the sixties or seventies, 
And um, they went to Geneva and looked in the phone book and just saw what, what the brands were. And they said, well, let's see, Chopin. Well, I'll just have a look at that. So he rang him up over the phone book. Hello, Mr. Chopin, are you interested in selling your business? I might be, come round. He had six employees. They did, they did the deal over a handshake and went back to Germany. And thus is wow. born one of the giant, I mean, and if you look today at what Chopin is, I mean, even the time that I've been following it closely, Carl Friedrich has built from nothing one of the most exigent manufacturers of timepieces. I mean, the, 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 talk about undervalued. I mean, the finishing on some of those things. And he thought, I would say, he does, I said, careful for Carl Friedrich, you know, you, you might get carried away and sell one of those one of these days. I mean, he, he's just, he's sort of, he's kind of Mr. Discreet. Um, and Caroline, of course, has sort of invented an entire high jewelry business off basically pretending to go to parties all the time. Do you know what I mean? It, it's, it's, it's a sort of... It's an amazing thing. It's, and, it, and it's authentic. It's exactly yeah. who they it's are. It's their life. It's who they are. Yeah. But also, it's... And, and, they still, and the parents are still involved in the business. And, you know, and it, it shows that you don't have to be an MBA toting spreadsheet jockey to, to run a, you know, a multi-billion or when, multi-million. When did you notice that these, um, we'll just call them financial types, yeah. started getting into this space? Because you're right, it was in the, in the mid to late 90s that it really started. What did you notice? What changed? You know, I, I, I wasn't doing this there. I, I, I it, it's difficult because also the thing is you're not really attuned to it. I mean, I just like writing about watches and spending time with people I, I liked. So I probably didn't, I probably, if, if there was a company that was being a bit boring, I probably stayed out of its way and just spent time hanging out with, I don't know, Jean-Claude Beaver, who I, I remember him telling me that he'd sort of been visited by the ghost of Mr. Blancpain in a, in a graveyard, and he'd instructed him as to sort of how to launch the brand. And you know, just, just people, when, people, when people are like that, are just brilliantly crazy. You just, I mean, I remember when Peter Harrison once took me to see uh, Behind the Crown manufacturers on the first floor of the main hall at Basel. He said, you've got to come and have a look at this. And I said, what's this, Peter? And he said, no, no, come, 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 come. And there was a guy in there with a the funny-shaped watch. And it was, happened to be called, it was called Richard Meal. I'd never heard of this guy. And he wasn't, he was just a man who worked at Maubusin who had an interesting watch design. And I said, well, let's have a look then. And I looked at it and I thought, fuck, this is going to change things a bit. I didn't realize quite how much. But, you know, it's things like that. that now looking back, you just see, well, that was kind of historically important. Uh, I mean, I remember I bought my first Royal Oak Offshore in 1994 because I thought this is so big and so ugly that they're going to stop making it in a couple of years, and I want to have one because I love it. <laughs> and you know, I didn't see one for I didn't see another one on being worn for five years, and then suddenly, 98, 99, boom! Every waiter, every hairdresser, every playboy, every yeah. gigolo, every every wannabe, every not every actual be, if that's if that's the opposite of a wannabe, um, was wearing one. Um, so, isn't it funny how every several years there's a product that does just that? We never predict what the product is, but there's always some product which is big and expensive, which is worn by one particular spectrum of society. Every couple of years it seems to happen. And we know that it's not going to be the same product as last time, and we know that we're not, we're not going to be quite sure what it is. Well, no, and that's what's, I mean, that's what's really interesting for me is being perpetually surprised. I still get a kick out of going to watch fairs and looking at new watches, which, given that I bore, I get bored quite easily. And I have been looking at new watches now since I, <laughs> I went to the 125th birthday party of IWC, <laughs> and they had a Swiss-German comic on stage tearing up newspapers into funny shapes, and that was the entertainment. Oh, gosh. Um, so, yeah, this is quite a while ago. So, I mean, I remember things like the the Grand Comp and the Destrier being launched and all that kind of thing. Um, but you never, you never know. You, you, and also the, there's, a, there's a sleeper, you know, like who knew that the Royal Oak Offshore would be so big? Um, certainly nobody knew Panerai. And, that, and Panerai happened because of, among other people, Monty Shadow and Johan Rupert and oh, what's his name, that nice, nice South African guy whose name I'm, I'm going to remember, but he went into Johan's office wearing one Johan said, what's that? He said, it's a Panerai. And I said, well, give it to me and you can wear this Cartier and I'm going to wear that for a bit. And then he took it home, all the kids loved it. And then he sort of instructed Monty to go out and arrange it. And Monty, I love Monty Shadow. He was... I remember Monty. And Monty was, a, Monty was brilliant. But he, but he was the antithesis of that. He had a, an ill-concealed contempt for that sort of corporate hierarchical structure, which I don't think served him well because, of course, there were people... There were, the, the corporate hierarchical structure is bigger than any one individual. 
And Monty was a fucking big individual, but, you know. I mean, to call that a corporate structure is a misnomer, because I guess in the U.S. terms, we think of it actually having a corporate, you know, like management structure, but Richemont is still more or less run by a very small number of people. But that's what I like. It's what I like. It's like a, it's like a sort of, it's like a, I don't think it's like quite like the feudal system, but it's still... I, I mean, I like the fact that these groups have their character. You know, I mean, you, you, you've got you've got Johan, you've we got call a family-run conglomerate. Yeah, which I like. Which I like. It's got character. You know, and they're well. And they're, those are truly powerful people. And yes, they can do crazy things. And this is what I like. And as long as they keep on doing crazy things, I'm all for it. And that's why you and me and a lot of other people have found interest in this hobby. Yeah, because it's one of the few places in life where, as an adult. You can play with things made that are kind of crazy. Yeah. And I love the discussion. And beautiful, don't forget. Beautiful, but that, it goes to this interesting discussion of the various vectors of watch appreciation. There's one object, the watch, but so many ways of appreciating. Well, this so is what I was talking angles. about when we started talking, was that you know, you've got your playboy who is on some yacht off Sardinia, and you've got some guy sitting in a sort of, in Le Locle, snowed in still at the same time of year probably, or La Chaux de Fonds. And yet they are united by this object in which they see totally different things. The, the object itself, does it still have interest for you? Are you yes. still? Yes. I, you I don't mean, hesitate, I like that. No, I mean, I love, I, I, I do love watches. I do love watches. I don't love all watches by any means, but I love looking at watches. I mean, I met some kid yesterday some French kid who'd started up Nevada again. Yeah, Guillaume. Um, yeah, nice young kid, you know, very, very, uh, sort of, I mean, he's not that young, he's 37, but he looks younger, so he looked about 25. Yeah, he's got a very young look. He looks so young, and yeah. he's got Maybe spectacles. Maybe it's the haircut. No, but it's the know. spectacles, and it's that kind of floppy, floppy, so that you want him to be called Hippolyte. Do you know what I mean? And he should be, he should be, he should be in some sort of French kind of lycée or something like that. And you'd imagine a Rite of Passage film being made about a guy with a haircut just like that. <laughs> and good geeky spectacles, and um, but he's making. You know, he's got his. He's got his. If you if you can't afford a Panerai, there's a little Panerai. If you can't afford an Explorer, there's a little whatever it is called. You know, and you know they're not they're not knockoffs. They have they have their own they have their own backstory, and I get I, I was interested in looking at those, and those are five hundred Swiss franc watches or something, or six hundred Swiss franc watches. What's amazing to me is that this industry has attracted so many random forms of entrepreneurialism. And I think that's what I'm realizing these days is that there's so many ways of funding and building and designing <clears throat> a watch. And that non-standardization is what allows for that craziness. Because like you, if it wasn't keeping me interested, I'd be like, I'm bored of this. I couldn't do it. I mean, I, I couldn't do it. I mean, I, I have to be... It's much, it's much more difficult for me to write something I've written before than it is for me to write something afresh. And I get bored. And it, even, if you, even if you sort of think, well, okay, it's, you know, people have got to eat and go to school and all this kind of thing, so therefore I ought to sort of buckle down. <sighs> you know, it's, it, it, but when, you're, when, you're do, when you've come across something that's funny... In the, in the broader sense, it's amusing, it entertains, it interests, it intrigues, you have a dialogue with the people who make it, you can see elements of the character of the people who made it. I mean, it's like when I went to do the story for what was then FT How to Spend It about the Apple Watch, and I went, and, um, I went over to Cupertino to see Johnny and Mark. Uh, this was December 2014, I think. Yep. And they launched it the following year. I could see, knowing those two guys, I could see, because I'm knowing them a bit beforehand, I mean, I knew, I knew Mark for about, God knows, I mean, since, we're about the same age and since the 90s, but you, I could see elements of their character creeping into the design of this electronic object, and that pleases me, do you know what I mean? And, and, and that's, that's a sort of rather extreme example because it's, it's not, it's not tr traditionally an object that I would, I would fall for. But I see, for example, when I look at what Thierry Stern does now, I can see him in those things. And I mean, you know, I, that, that sort of, you know, that scooped out bezel that, you know, that's on the 5970 and the, and the 5960. That, the, you know, and, the, and, the, and it's, it's a great privilege to be able to see people, aspects of their characters in these pieces. And I mean, also, it's very interesting having known Thierry's father um, over the years, 
you were talking about entrepreneurial spirit there. There's a guy who made every right business decision and made it 10 years ahead of everybody else. Museum. I mean, then it was like, I don't know when they opened, 20 years ago, something like that. Uh, Plan Lewat. He had to, when he announced, when he made the announcement, he had to sort of put in there sort of, it's a place on the way out of town near the Renault garage, you know. And there, and there he was. I mean, um, what else? Uh, sticking, with, sticking with courts. It was him and Heine, sti- no, sticking with mechanical in the courts time. It was him and Heinegger, basically at the same time, in about 1976, decided that they would, yes, make some courts, but they would actually also continue to develop and, and focus on mechanical. That, I mean, there's, there's a reason why Patek and Rolex are the strongest brands today. So, I mean, and it's a privilege to have known people or to know people like that, you know, um, they, because they, they have... Well, it's, it's the story behind the thing. that these They don't even write their own histories in any way or why they do anything. If you're not there talking to the individual, piecing it together, you have no idea why they're making the decisions they do. No. They don't explain any of it. Every, we, we talk to them all the time now where they're trying to go back in their archives to understand why did they choose this design? Why did they name it this? What on earth were they thinking? And they just have to guess most of the time. Well, I mean, it's interesting you say that because there is this, because we have this incredibly powerful, and it's only going to get more powerful, technological digitization of information or misinformation. So you will have people trying to kind of reverse engineer a meaning that wasn't there in the first place. Why, you know, we will, an auction house will call it, you know, scholarship suggests that only seven of these of these uh, transition dials exist. Probably the thing was, it was they had seven dials left in the drawer and they thought, well, fuck, we better use these up because it's a waste of money not. It's, and, it's fr- and it's Friday lunchtime. I want to get off for the weekend. So, you know, I mean, I, I exaggerate. But, I mean, there, is, there, is, there, is, there will be sometimes a very human... They overly romanticize it, don't they? Well, they overly romanticize it or they try to overly codify it. You know, that it's a sort of, it's a type Like there was three. a reason. The, yeah, there's not, there's not always a reason. I mean, no. sometimes there is. But I mean, you know, it's, I remember, I mean, you know, the, the story, the well-known story about the, um, uh, about the Monaco is that, you know, when they were doing that, uh, when they were doing their um, self-wind, the caliber, whatever, the, I mean, the, the one with the winder on the wrong side, you know, the, the very famous self-winding caliber from 1969. Yeah, 11, caliber 11. Okay, um, that Jack, at, the, at that time, somebody came in with the first relatively straight-sided water-resistant water case. So he just said, well, that's why we may as well call it the Monaco because they're quite amazing and it's interesting-looking and it's water-resistant, so that's good. And it was, it was a sub-supplier came in and showed it to him and he said, yeah, I'll take it as long as I can have it myself. I mean, I've heard of uh, proprietors of brands asking a big client, for example, um, if you buy the first one, I'll name the collection after you. A very reasonable decision. You know? Why not? Like, but there's all these little things that happen. And also, as I'm saying this, I'm realizing that much of the time, the only way to get this information is through conversation is that this is a secret of industry. That's because Switzerland is a, is a discreet, I prefer the word discreet culture. I mean, don't forget that their banking laws were, it was mandated institutionalized by banking secrecy. It was the, it was the opposite of what one... Okay, that discretion, secrecy, same outcome is that they're not taking the time to disclose the information or even write it down. No, that's true. And that, that, I think, is a cultural thing. Well, it makes the job of collectors and historians particularly tricky, as well as marketers today that want to know things. And I think one of the most wide areas of criticism that brands have gotten into, and you and I both know this, is making up history. Yes. So they, so they, why can't they just admit we're discreet, we didn't keep records? They go so far as to make it up as though there is, like, I, I don't even know how to explain it, but they're, they, they get so much flack for it, yet they continue to make up these elaborate stories. Because it then gives an understand. you can understand, if you, if you don't have the foundations, you have to create them upon which you then build this edifice. I mean, it's... Yes, it's, I'm with you, <laughs> but, I mean, but also if you look at the reverso, for example, that wasn't despite what we're told, most, the most interesting things happened to it from the 80s onwards, not, not in the 30s and before. I mean, it wasn't hugely successful. They sold the design to a few people. They, there were a couple of Patek reversos. There were some reverso Cartiers. But that was because... Because Jaeger manufactured knife-edge cases for Cartier and the culture manufactured the movements. This is this was when they were doing pocket watches, and that's how they came together. Yeah, a long time ago. Um, and the reverso 
which is a fascinating watch, and I think still one of the most beautiful watches there is. Uh, the, you know, they had to re-engineer the entire sort of the swivel mechanism because it was kind of rubbish. But the it was it was just some Italians who wanted to have this kind of rather chic watch again, and the, and they had some new old stock movements up at the factory that they kind of cleaned up, fitted up, and sent down to Italy, and found it was successful. And they say, what do you know? We've got a success on our hands, and slowly or not so slowly, these things become a, a pillar. Not, you know, they become, and that was the days of Gunter Blumlein and all that. But also, you see that it doesn't have to be. I mean, it doesn't have to be ancient history. You can add. And just because it's not a glamorous history doesn't mean that it's not history, you know. Well, I look at the Italians that we've mentioned a few times here, and I, I credit them with the beginning of modern watch enthusiasm. For sure. Uh, Wristwatch enthusiasm, for sure. But what they've done is they're able to mix and match elements of history to achieve maximal beauty. And they care about the result a little bit more than exactly what went into, like, where it came from. Like, they'll just, that's pretty, that's pretty, that's pretty, let's put it together here. And I think that's benefit with watches because they're really saying, well, we like that brand, but we like that design, we like that thing. And they started valuing those watches that, you know, really promoted fashionability. Mm -hmm. Because before that, it was quite a nerdy endeavor. The Germans were great at talking about, like, the history of movements and how they work and all that stuff. And and they started the the modern magazine culture to talk about it. But the Italians said, let's value them for being sexy. I mean, for me, I always got, I got into watches first as being old accessories that would go with the period, with the, with the, with the old suits I wore. And I liked them because they were just objects from the past. So they were seen as, as old even back then? They were like a retro item? Uh, in the 70s, yeah, the stuff, I, the stuff I was wearing was made in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. I mean, I wasn't, I mean this, wasn't, this wasn't at all big-name stuff. It was stuff like Roma and Syro and sure. all these. And, and, just, um, just, and, and also stuff from the... From the, from the certainly from the 20s, mostly from the 20s, unsigned or signed with the name of the retailer, so Camara Cuss or whatever, in a silver case. Case, so you'd buy the movement and then it would be cased in Birmingham or something like that, or Glasgow or wherever the fuck it was imported into. And then it would be sold by a, by a, by a retailer. So, you would, so it was basically the watch, what we regard now as the heart and sacred soul of the watch, was just a component that would be shipped over here, cased here because presumably there was importation tariffs that you wanted to sort of circumvent. Not circumvent, but just not have to pay. Yeah, well, it's less. It's less expensive on taxes. Yeah, and then and then the retailer wasn't going to. Why? Why if he'd opened a shop with his name above the door, is he going to promote somebody else's name on the dial of a watch? So thank no, you. No, but very that's much. how the Geneva industry was. Is the the it was the same exact thing. It was yeah. the people that made the movement never had their name on the no. dial. No, so the thing would go from some farmhouse in in the Valais de Joux to some sort of retailer in the West End of London, and something would be added to it at every step of the sort of interaction with, you know, every step so of the journey. So what did your peers say in response to these watches? They had watches, they had modern watches, presumably. Nobody cared about watches in those days. But they needed the time, so they yeah, noticed Yeah, but this it. was, don't forget, this was, this is a, this is a, you had the time, but it, but first of all, it was a real thing. The watch was still a real thing. It wasn't a, a gimmick or a collector's circle thing. Yeah, it was a, a tool you needed. It was just something that people had, you know, like shoes. Yeah. So if you cared about shoes, you know, you'd notice them. And if you didn't care about shoes, you wouldn't notice them. Watches, I mean, this is also England in the 1970s, which was, if you see, I invite you to look up on the internet um, how bad England was in the 70s. We had actually had power, power cuts that were announced in the newspapers to give you time to do your um, washing and uh, homework by, by night. People would go shopping in supermarkets, but with candles. I mean, this is how, this, this, was, this country might be heading there again, but it was certainly... I mean, this is while Americans were driving around in huge cars and going to Miami and all this kind of thing. Oh my gosh! No, no, no. I mean, England, England, England was yeah. I mean, it's quite. It's, so yes, we weren't necessarily sort of saying is that is that a double red or something like that. Do you know what I mean? Or um, I was just curious because for me, when I was that age into watches, my, my friends could care less. They got annoyed. They're like, "Shut up! I don't want to yeah, hear about this anymore." Yeah, they didn't. They didn't. They were exactly. There was no. It wasn't. It wasn't a thing. I was kind of slightly odd for even being interested in it. More than slightly odd. Hi, I'm Ariel Adams, founder of a blog to watch with a message from eBay, a platform I probably use daily. Make sure your watches are the real deal with eBay Authenticity Guarantee. I believe it's the first and best service of its kind that protects your luxury purchases and checks each watch individually at eBay's highly reputable authentication partner, Stolen Company, in the United States. 
From band to bezel, their authenticators ensure each wristwatch matches the eBay listing and is the real deal. Authenticity guarantee is also very fast. Once authentication is complete, your watch is securely delivered via rapid two-day shipping. Surprisingly, eBay's authenticity guarantee service is free for all watches priced $2,000 and up. No one should buy a luxury item without an authenticity guarantee. Do what I do and check eBay before each watch purchase because everyone deserves real. Let's change tack mm -hmm. to talk about all these things, but communicating it to an audience, because you, after all, are a writer yeah. and an editor and historian, and you have books that you've done. Yeah. Uh, you've been quite prolific. Talk about your career starting and how you got to communicate your enthusiasm for luxury and all these things with the world. I started in the wine trade. Wine? Yes, because I like drinking. Okay. I did my wine exams, Did went into wine PR, didn't like that. Um, then I went to work, I turned up at a newspaper trying to get the job of wine columnist, and they gave me a job of editing a section of a newspaper instead. This is hmm. the Evening Standard, I was 24 years old. And um, it's been downhill ever since, really. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's how I started as an, as an editor, and I was enjoying the writing, and then I just was, a, and I was able to, it, it was... Also, it was it was the sort of it was the last golden age of print in that there wasn't anything else. So you would have five editions of a newspaper a day, and people would say things like "hold the front page" and all that. You know, I mean, it was and it you know, and people would go out and drink, you know, pints of wine for lunch and stuff like that. So it was it was like a film. And I was I, I came in there and expecting this kind of hugely intellectual atmosphere. You know what I mean? I was, and it, it wasn't. It was fairly rough and tumble. But again, it was quite interesting being a sort of curiosity in that world um and it i mean and then i just because i like writing about watches i started doing a bit of that but in really i mean i remember the great excitement because i was friendly with the guy who imported breitling into the uk and the great excitement when i got my first breitling um chronomat in and it was the same one actually the way kogox we're ways a bit younger than i am but he's he's more precocious than i am and he got the same watch it was the blue dial Blue sharkskin strap, uh, bicolor. So you had um, the, bu the the buttons, the chronograph buttons, the winding crown were gold, as were the rider tabs on the moving bezel. I remember those. Yeah. Um, and I think Gina Macaluso had a lot of input into that watch because it was important that it sold on the Italian market. So he worked back from the price based on the monthly earnings of the average Italians. So he wanted to pitch it at the right level so it was expensive enough to be valued but insufficiently expensive as to be affordable. Um, so... Yeah, I just basically, because I like the stuff. So I read a lot about Breitling for a long time. Where exactly? In what context? What did you say about it? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I found something to say. Okay. I mean, but also, also a, lot of it, a lot of it was contextual. So, you know, there were, there were because I was writing about restaurants, and there was a guy called Moen Stolstrup, who was a sort of Euro guy who was quite glamorous. He had a glamorous wife and then a glamorous girlfriend. And he had a couple of sort of hot restaurants. And it was, you know, a Moens, as I went to interview, he was wearing a Breitling, and then he was wearing an Omega. And then he said that sort of Omega is the cool watch. And so there was this, I came at it from all sorts of ways. I wasn't... What years were these? These, this would be the 92. Okay. 91, 92, something like that. And then I did my first watch supplement for, for a magazine that was then called Harper's and Queen. And that was, I think, 1995. And then in about 2000, I set up the Vanity Fair on Time, which is still going. That, that, so that's, it's been going that long? Yeah. Talk, talk about that. Well, Vanity Fair on Time was the idea of a woman called Annie Holcroft, who got the idea from a man called Denny Pash, who imported Jaeger and IWC into England. Before it, before it was Richemont, then you went to work for it anyway. But he had the idea of, why don't we do a non-brand non specific, a, a, a watch magazine supplement to a, a, a glossy magazine? And I must admit, she called me in because I knew a bit about watches by then. And I'd done one of these for Harpers and Queen, and it had been so successful we didn't needed to do one because we obviously clearly covered all the all the angles um, there. And she said, "No, give it a go. See what see what see what happens. See what you think." And that was, I think, in two thousand and two, two thousand and three, something like that. It was about twenty years ago. Okay. And it seemed to do all right. And then it sort of became, and then I said, well, what we've also got is, I think we, I've, I think we did 
we used to do it there towards the end of the year for Christmas. And then I thought, well, actually, there's also the big trade events of the trade fairs are in the, at the beginning of the year, or big, more beginning of the year in those days. And um, I said, why don't, we do, why don't we do a two a year? And then we do two a year, and we still do two a year. And I mean, it's still, it's still going. It's still, because I think, again, it's slightly different. It's not just straightforward, straightforwardly recording what's going on. The, the issues are themed. I mean, Carl Friedrich Schäufele paid me the great compliment one, one time, and it really was a compliment, and I think he actually meant it. He said, I keep every one of those magazines because there's always something good in there that I read. And he said, and there's always plenty that I need to go back and look up. So it, that, for me, for somebody who, you know, hearing from somebody who actually cares and is a figure in the industry who actually keeps these things is, is, is very flattering. What were you modeling that off of? I mean, obviously there was nothing like that for watches, but was there coverage like that for other things that you thought, boy, if someone could do that for watches, it'd be No, I then did it for art, and I then did it for motoring and boats and stuff, for Vanity Fair. And unfortunately, in the uh, recent restructuring or whatever has gone on, they got rid of the art one and the, and the sort of what we used to call Vanity Fair. It was Vanity Fair on time, Vanity Fair on art, and Vanity Fair en route. Ha, ha, ha. Um, and they were great, and the art one was great fun to do, and I've written a few books about artists, so I'm, I'm, I like the arts. And, um, but they, they, didn't make the, they didn't make the transition. For, uh, I just don't think they were sufficiently profitable. What about book publishing? Because I know that in this space, you've probably done more watch books than a lot of people. I haven't counted. But th- you know, that's, that's a tough thing for many people. Why do you enjoy spending so much time. You seem to get bored easily, which I guess to me does not necessarily coincide with I'm going to focus and write a whole book for a long time. But you've done a lot of books on a lot of topics. How did you get into that and what do you still enjoy about that? It's a different pace. So I love, I love doing short journalism. I mean, short, you know, doing something finished, starting in the morning, finishing it in the early afternoon or whatever. That's great. But then I also like something that is a project to which I can return and work at a different pace. And I wrote a number of books about the early 19th century in England, which were, I'm, you know, on the whole, pretty well received critically. And one of them did all right. I mean, I, you know, never made any money off them, and they never troubled the bestseller list. But you know, they were. I mean, they, they were things that I wanted to do, and people liked. And then I did a paint. I did a book about a painter called Bernard Buffet, which was part of a slight reappraisal of his work that it, it came out and then a year late or towards the end of the year it came out there was nothing to do obviously because it planned much further in advance but we've both been there was a big exhibition at the Musée de la Moderne de la Ville de Paris of this painter that I had independently been working on a book about and they'd been devising this major retrospective exhibition over the course of four or five years and they sort of more or less coincided and that was very interesting to be part of the reappraisal of an artist's of and I mean that that and it was something that, first of all, it was a great story. I don't know if you know the story of Bernard Buffet. But no. He was, he was the child prodigy. Um, he won the Prix de la Critique when he was 18 or 19, I forget. I mean, I mean anyway. And then he was, he was praised as the next successor to Picasso. He got picked up by Pierre Berger, who um, he was basically a sort of Yves Saint Laurent figure, you know, because he, he was bisexual, quite sort of, quiet and retiring, but also quite powerful, worked all the time. I mean, literally, like a maniac. Um, he, got, he, was, he, was, he was also, in the, bearing in mind the post-war France was quite tough. He had a Rolls-Royce, an island, and a chateau by the time he was 30. Wow. And he couldn't drive. So he had, you know, he had a driver for the Rolls-Royce. And then, he, and then he, Berger left him to go with Yves Saint Laurent. He then went and married this woman called Annabelle Schwab, who was like a kind of cross between... Brigitte Bardot and Françoise Sagan, and it was it was it was a great story, and you could tell the story of post-war France through the lens of this guy because he committed suicide very conveniently in 1999, just at the end of the 20th century. So you had this wonderful, wonderful story of this life, and this, some, sometimes the guy was thought to be a genius, sometimes thought to be a, a crass hack. Sometimes he was, I mean, then, then the Japanese discovered him. It was just a roller coaster ride. And also you got to tell the story of France. 
So I quite like that. So that, that sort of, that's why a story like that will keep my attention. So, for example, when I did the Patek Philippe book, that again is something. And I mean, the problem with a book like that is I never want to hand it in or finish it because I could always be adding to it. I could still be adding to it now. And also it was quite nice because they, weren't, they were quite happy to let me do more or less as I wanted to the point where I think someone said to me, why are there only eight pages on the Nautilus? And I said, well, if you look at the, the, if you look at the total output of Patek Philippe from beginning to end, I would say probably eight pages out of 400 is probably in terms of production numbers and, and, and time. And, yeah, it's and, a pretty and small story also overall. Also importance. <laughs> you can't, you, can't you, you know, once you put in the sort of, the whole backstory, the front story, the news story, the, and then, I mean, and the fact that, and the great thing about Patek is they're still a, a full-service manufacturer, you know, jewelry, sports, simple, complicated, hyper-complicated, jewel, I mean, women's, men's, it, it's, it's one of the few brands left that doesn't just pay lip service to the, to the, I mean, that amazing campaign they've got now, there are no stars of Patek Philippe or whatever, so, you know, it's, it's genius. I mean, to, to, to have the guts to then take away your best-selling model and not replace it, but replace it with a white gold one because you want people to look at what else you're doing and not become prisoner or something, that's pretty gutsy. And you can only do that if you are owner-operated because if you're an employee and you, employees are rewarded for productivity and sales, so obviously you're going you're gonna to want to shove a lot of watches don't, out the door. Don't you think that a company like Cartier also has been doing that. They've actually been quite open with the fact that they'll just retire certain models and bring them back later. Cartier is a great love of mine. And I think that Cyril Vigneron has done the most remarkable job. I mean, you know, it came along just the right time for Cartier because um, obviously with Tiffany changing hands and new energy being put into Tiffany, Cartier wasn't in the best shape for whatever reasons, and I, I can't understand, I don't know what these reasons were. But he, he had to buy back, I think he told me a quarter of a billion euros worth of unsold stock or something, oh. clean the market, which is again, you know, you, I mean, you, you, that, that again is not a decision taken lightly, but in, the, in one, of these, one of these companies where it's all done literally by kind of trust and, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying he just said, Johan, Johan, could I clean up, give me a quarter of a billion to just clean up the market. I'm sure they sort of did a bit of due diligence, but still, it's a gutsy decision. And then to basically have also the, the, hum, the humility to not say, I'm going to design better watches than were made in the past. I'm, I have the humility to recognize that actually the prettiest watches Cartier did were made in the past. Now, there are some good ones. I quite like the Cartier Drive, for example. It's just a terrible name. They said to me, well, drive is the same in any language. I said, so shit, but it doesn't mean it's good. Do you know what I mean? It's a terrible and, name. And, and the drive is a great watch. It's actually <laughs> yeah. the Cartier Coin Coupe by another name and expanded in size. So, and I, I think that part of the reason the drive wasn't a great success is because of the name, because it had nothing to do with driving, but it was just a sort of, it was like a chat, it was a chat GPT or whatever. It was before chat GTP. This is when the watch designers and the marketing people never even met each other. No, they, That's didn't, what know. they didn't know what they were doing. No, that, but, that is, but that is an example of that. That is just so brilliant. But that's probably what went wrong, is that you actually had quite good things coming out. And, I mean, you look at the Tank Francaise in 1996, absolute gangbusters until the next big hit, Cartier Ballon Bleu. I don't particularly like the Ballon Bleu, but I can see it's, it's got it's a bit of the Cartier Ceinture, it's a, kind of, it's a bit of the pebble, it's a bit of everything. And gangbusters again. And then there's this sort of not particularly great period the Cartier Diver, the Cartier Clay. I mean, these, maybe one day, maybe you and I will one day say, shit, I wish we'd bought all, all the Cartier Clays we could buy. Do you know what I mean? There's sometimes designs are ahead of their time and their moment but, has yet to come. Yeah. This happens a lot. I, would, I wouldn't necessarily go on record saying that about the Cartier Diver, but maybe you're right, I don't know. But then Cyril comes along. And I mean, because I was always, for 20 years, I was saying to whatever CEO of Cartier was there, when are you going to win back Cartier Collection Paris pre Collection Privé? Because that's the best thing of it. Oh, no, 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 we got, we got the super double tourbillon, nuit et jour, les, les étoiles for uh, you know, 185,000 euros. I said, yeah, but I want to see the fucking tanks in tray or something like this. And no, 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 what do you want to see? I said, no, I know what I want to see. And it's not that. So we have this. And then, and then we agree to disagree. And I say how marvelous and everybody goes, I'm happy. And then Cyril 
comes in and just decides, well, yeah, we look, you know, you look through the back catalogue and see, well, actually, this stuff's really fucking great. Why aren't we doing it, you know? Cardi is a really underappreciated brand, but I think what's interesting... I think less underappreciated now because they've done such a good job at showing that they make just beautiful watches. And they used to have, they used to have this position in the, in the 90s. Cartier watches, both vintage... It was, the vintage market was Patek, obviously, Rolex, and vintage Cartier. My, my, my response to this, and again, I'm, I'm on the same page as you, but I have always had my finger on the pulse of the community. And the problem is, is that most men uh, don't know what to make of a brand like Cartier once they start becoming watch lovers. Because probably they've heard of Cartier as, as, as something related to a, a woman's product. And that's what ends up happening a lot, is men get confused. They're like, you're telling me they make men's watches, but I associate it with women. You know, a brand like Chanel is a perfect example. Yes, and that was a, that was a man's watch. I mean, Jacques Ellul, Jacques Ellul is, again, one of the great... I think his contribution to Chanel, I know it's heretical to say so, it might even be greater than that of Karl Lagerfeld, because he was in, was in charge of all the image, all those amazing, memorable ads, Ego East, all those ads, in charge of all of those, and he designed the J12 for himself. Now, it went on to be a great selling watch for women, but even when they relaunched it, they basically changed maybe the number of teeth on the, on the crown. And I have a men's J12, and I love it. But I, it, I it, love it, that it watch. Is. And I mean, that is an example of a great watch. And the story, again, is great. And it's, 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 it's perfect. I don't have one because I don't, it's, not, it's not necessarily to my taste, but it's a watch that I really respect because it's not trying to be anything other than it isn't. And I don't mean that in a bad way or a good way. It's just, it's not making claims it can't back up, and it's not hiding its elegance under a sort of false modesty. It's, it's a beautifully realized product with proper heritage to it. We're almost out of time, and I was thinking about the fact that we probably need to have more conversations. But to end the conversation, I want you to give some advice, because you are someone who has spent a lot of your, your time looking at the good and the bad and being able to distinguish. Give some advice for novice watch lovers out there. I've got, I, I hesitate to give advice. Hold on, hold on. I hesitate to give advice. Really but, but about carry what on, to, tell me, tell me, tell me. Really tell me. about what to look for. Advice and how to collect, no one can give that. But the idea is you're helping them with what to look for. You're giving them a hint as to what to eye in terms of quality and design. You've spent a long time identifying this. They're going to buy what they like. But give them a hint because what happens is they're just listening to people saying, yo, you got to buy this watch. This is the watch to buy. And they're probably That's, right because it's Mr. Z or whoever it is. Whatever it is. But, but we like, love those people. And I mean, No, but they don't, I, I don't want that for them. I want them to think of good rules and good taste and to try to just make taste good decisions. Taste, taste is a very interesting thing. There was a man called Mark Burley who, um, who got me onto old Cartier really in the 90s, very early 90s. Um, he was, he lived the most exquisite life. I mean, we used to do backgammon tournaments at his house. And um, when, I, when, when I went to do the first one with him, which was actually, we got Odomar Piguet to give a watch, and I won it, which was very handy. I, couldn't, I mean, it was amazing how I did, because I couldn't play backgammon in those days. And um, he said, he sort of, we were sitting there with Mark, and he said, well, we'll have some lobster souffle to start with, and then we'll move on to the, I don't know, the sort of Pyrenean spring-fed lamb and... Um, if you want, I've got some freshly squeezed peach juice. We can make a nice Bellini, and you know this was just this was just normal life for him. I think his flower bill was something like three hundred thousand pounds a year or something for his house. And they said and we play the finals on this backgammon board, and he brought out this huge backgammon board and unfolded it, and it was a sort of Hermes board with a tapestry woven playing surface. And he rolled the dice, and he said, "What do you hear?" And I said, "I don't know, Mister Burley, but I'm sure you're going to tell me." And he said, "You don't hear anything." I said, "No, I don't." He said, "It's very relaxing." They don't get disturbed by the noise of the dice. That's civilization. That is elegance. That is, for me, I mean, yes, it's in, in the wider world of pain and sorrow through which we trudge and through which others have a far harder time than we do. It's irrelevant. But it's also, it's a moment of epiphany that you actually realize that there are people who devote themselves to a life, to, to, a, to, a, to a level of civilization that is, it's in its way. It's a kind of, it's a mini Sistine Chapel on a daily basis. Do you know what I mean? It's a sense of occasion about everything. And when we used to play the tournaments, you only had to move your elbows. You would have your cigar ashtray here, your brandy would be here, your notepad would, to note the score would be here, and then you'd throw the dice and move the pieces. So you would have minimal, minimal movement. And I rang him up once, and his housekeeper answered the phone, and she said, I said, oh, is Mr. Burley there? And she sort of said, she went off and said, I was going to see you. 
And she said, I'm afraid he can't come to the phone. He's busy relaxing, which for me is the, the best answer ever. To, to the point of giving collectors, young collectors advice. Well, there is the hoary old maxim, don't buy what you tell, but buy what you like, which is a cliche, but it's true. If you like something, buy it, if you can afford it. But try and understand what it is you like about it, whether it is, just try and understand what it is you like about it. And if it is just the name and the fact that Brad Pitt has advertised, not that, I mean, Brad Pitt is a genius, of course, but whoever, whichever rented star has sort of been promoting it for you. Maybe that's a good thing, I don't know, but just, but just be aware of the reason that you're buying this thing. Do you know what I mean? So then you, then you begin to interrogate your own choices and find out what it is that you like, what it is that you don't like. I mean, we haven't touched on Rolex. Rolex is amazing. But what I could never understand was, I mean, first of all, the, 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 I mean, the date just is the, is, the, is the perfect everyday watch. And it is, it, it's, it's sort of like, it's, it's one of those things that, if, if an alien were to land and sort of want 20 things that represented humanity, one of them would be a Coca-Cola bottle, one of them would be a Rolex date just, one of them would be, I don't know, I mean, then, then I kind of begin to run out of sort of perfect objects. Do you know what I mean? But the, these, these would be the things that would represent what humanity is, because you, you go anywhere in the world, you go to some Borneo, you go in the forest in Borneo, they're going to know what a Rolex is. And... Um, you know, that is, I mean, you know, if you look, talk about good taste, if you look at the Rolex presidential bracelet, there's a reason why they've been making it pretty much the same for since 1945, is it's pretty near perfect. It is so comfortable and it looks great. It catches the light fantastically, if you like that kind of thing, and I happen to like it. Um, it feels great and it's the right size for telling the time and you can actually read the date. Now, that is that sort of, I think it's the sort of typical Mies van der Rohe Bauhaus principle of form actually following function. Um, but then I also like things that are the opposite of that. So the Rolex King Midas, for example, which is what I thought, I thought for years, are people mad? There's a numbered series by Rolex in gold that's about 250 grams, and you can buy them for, like, the scrap value. I thought, are people fucking crazy? And it's, it's, and it's amazing, and it's an amazing thing, but because it wasn't a sports model and you, you, hadn't, you couldn't go diving for petrol in it or something... <laughs> um, you know, it, it wasn't any good. Now, I'm, 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 I'm disappointed to say that that, that, that lacuna has been um, filled. But um, there's nothing wrong with, I mean, simple things like a movement that fits the case. You can see where in days when they used to make bigger size watches, where basically all they did was they sort of, you have, you have a smaller watch in the middle, and then you have a sort of bigger watch. You have the sort of you have a, you have a sort of extra three millimeters each side around the side of sort of scales and stuff like this. But actually, the subdials are bunched very close together. If you're happy with that, that's great. But you ought to be aware of these things. Do you know what I mean? You ought to you ought to be aware of why, if if for example, when you're winding it up and the and the crown hurts and you can't really get a grip on winding it, it's probably not brilliantly designed. I mean, I think it was amazing that Audemars Piguet got away for 50 years by having a movement that didn't have a quick date change. I mean, I just thought, that's brilliant. That's the, that's the power of the Genta design, though, and the power of basically... I remember all the men I used to admire in London had Royal Oaks, and this was in the late 80s, early 90s, and they were very... They were, because it was still quite a niche thing then. It's a cool... It was a, I mean, before it became... Um, a trope. It's a really cool thing. And you can imagine what that must have looked like, especially in the conservative Swiss watch industry in 1972. Now, there, but a friend of mine said to me that the, the screws with the hexagonal heads were very annoying. He's an engineer because you couldn't actually screw them in because they're, they're hexagonal things. But the, those, in traditional terms, would be things that would militate against it being good taste if you regard things like Victorian radiators in the shape of cathedrals as being bad taste. I think they're funny, but but, but bad taste. <laughs> but the power of the beauty of that design, and, and, if, it, you, and unfortunately now you can't dissociate the fact it became a valuable thing, then a less valuable thing, but still more than you would pay at retail for it and things like that. You know, there are moments like that where you see things that you just, you just think, wow, that's... It's like when I saw that, I mean, and I know that, I know that Joel Genta wasn't necessarily terribly happy about the offshore, but you just see things like that, and it's probably not, 
But it was definitely not good taste. I mean, people looked at me and said, wow, what the fuck is that? You want a dustbin on your wrist? Or you want to be a robot? Or, you know, people, people <laughs> think of this thing, because I had this basic, this chunk of sort of, this basic what looked like a chunk of octagonal metal on my, on my wrist. It was support, I mean, it was, and I was, my wrists are like those of a child. <laughs> and this was, not a, this was not a watch for children. And also with the early one with the hooded lugs, it didn't actually sit very easily on the wrist. But so, yes, as long as you can understand what makes good taste. I mean, if you look at Patek's Calatravas, they are probably perfect. Okay. Look for near perfect. That's the you, you, went, you went fine perfect, but... Near perfect. Near perfect. That's good. That's, I, I thought you didn't want to give advice. You give very good advice. Well, you're very kind. This has been the a blog to watch superlative podcast interview, the first one I think with uh, Mr. Nick Falks. Nick, where can people find your work on the internet or elsewhere? Good question. I've written three books on cigars. Did I tell you that? You hadn't got mentioned that. Oh, That's and I do. And I, nice oh, you can find you can find you can find some of my best work, which is done with my son on the internet. It's on YouTube, and it's called Falks and Sons. And we sit and we dress up in funny clothes and talk crap and smoke a cigar um that is i mean it's it's a master it's it's a souffle of nonsense and i love doing it that's quite funny um so that's probably quite good i don't know if it's good or not but it's quite representative what i do and then the rest of it you have to look in the bookshops um some of it goes online um and buy vanity fair buy the financial times htsi and by the way i've been doing this for so long there must be a sort of accumulation of it somewhere in some dark corner of the internet. Nick, thank you so much. All right. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at ablogtowatch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit ablogtowatch.com. <laughs>